Hi there, welcome to a new episode of What Are You Going To Do With That? In this podcast of the Minerva Center of the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa, I, Dani, a PhD candidate, chat with young researchers about their ups and downs in the academic world. For former episodes and more information about our guests and their research, check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by simply searching What Are You Going To Do With That? or with the tag at What To Do With That? where the two is written as the number two. Today's guest is especially young. And with young, I do not mean age, but the stage in the academic career. On the other side of the screen is Nevena Rebic, who is about to finish her MSc and will start her PhD in September in pharmaceutical sciences. Welcome, Nevena. I'm glad to have you here with us, even though I might pronounce your name wrong over and over again. I love it. <laughs> I think we should keep that in. <laughs> Right? <laughs> All right, then I'll move on to the next part. Nevna has an impressively long resume for an MA student, I think. She has a BSc in pharmacy from the University of British Columbia, after which she continued with an MSc in pharmaceutical sciences at the same university. During the MA studies, Nevna also got a certificate in drug effectiveness and safety cross-disciplinary training at the University of Toronto. She will start her PhD in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of British Columbia in September. Can you tell me in one sentence what your research topic will be? And I promise that I'll give you more time to talk about it later. So currently unknown, but it'll definitely build off of what I'm doing right now, which contains a little bit of reproductive health, a little bit of medication management from my background as a pharmacist, um, and then um, the rest... Um, We'll have to see and find out. All right, a topic we haven't talked about on this podcast before, so I'm very happy to have you here. Let me continue a little bit with your resume that I was working on. So during your studies, you've also received various scholarships and you've also worked as a graduate trainee and a student researcher. You've been part of research projects such as the contraception and abortion research team and on arthritis. Together with others, you've submitted quite a few articles to academic journals, and a recent accepted publication is titled Perinatal Exposure to Conventional Synthetic Disease-Modifying Anti-Rheumatic Drugs in Women with Inflammatory Arthritis and Neonatal Outcomes, published in Clinical and Experimental Rheumatology. Yes. I hope I pronounced everything right. That was amazing. Thanks. <laughs> Before I start with some short questions, I'm going to pour myself an amaretto, which is my signature drink, right here on my table. It's 10 o'clock at my place now in the evening. What is your time exactly? Um, let's say noon 30. All right. And what are you having for a drink? So I am not much of a beer person, or I don't know much about alcohol at all, but I've recently found this fancy Vancouver brand of pale ale, um, and it's called Big Sexy Funk. It has a very nice color. I'm gonna take a screenshot there. Oh, wonderful, here, I'll do one more. <laughs> so, nice. it's made in Stratacona, which is a Vancouver, uh, a neighborhood in Vancouver, and so I'll be re representing my area. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Okay, yeah. Nice. I'm oh, also Jesus. pouring myself my drink. There you go. I hope I didn't pour too much. Truly the middle of the day here, so I should save some for later. Although they do say it's five o'clock somewhere, right? 
That's true. It's way past five here, and at least we'll have something to cheers. So, cheers. Cheers. Zoom cheers. All right, let's get started. My first short question is, what does your ideal working day look like? And is it any different now that you're working from home because of the corona situation? This is a short question. Yes. <laughs> My d ideal working day starts with a nice glass of tea or coffee. It has some chit chat with some of my coworkers, so a little bit to stay connected, and it has hopefully me focusing on my to do some of the tasks that I have on my to do list and getting some progress there. And then I guess pre corona, it also had a lot of meetings for extracurricular activities that I was involved in, and now that looks a little bit different, but I'm still trying to kind of ensure for even my own mental well-being that I'm keeping up connections with my team, uh, with my friends, and now that we've kind of eased some social distancing rules that I'm planning some social distancing hangouts. So um, I feel like the conventional norms of like social life are very much changing. Like I'm becoming, hey, would you like to come on a hike with me, girl? Which I never was before, even though I do live in Vancouver where hiking is very much a popular activity. It sounds like a very healthy routine to add yeah. a little bit of hiking instead of sitting at home all the time. Yes, it took two months. It, <laughs> it took you two months to get there. I don't think you're the only one. Yeah, it took two months to actually um, think about what I might need to maintain some sort of sanity. So I guess my biggest sort of accomplishment these last this last week has been incorporating physical activity on a daily basis into my life. Very good. Let's see how long we can both keep it up. Uh, mm. All right, second one. Did you ever keep a New Year's resolution? No. <laughs> you broke one, though. Sounds like um, it. I kind of quit on uh, creating New Year's resolutions very early on. Because um, they're either very typical and, you know, weight and body image focused, or I was never creative enough. I had some friends who had some really good ones, but I could never keep a daily, like, keep a dream journal for a year or not go shopping, which is some of the th cool things that I've seen my friends actually keep. Sounds like a tough one. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Um, I can't think of a New Year's resolution that I've kept. I've thought of plenty but right? wasn't able to keep up yeah I now try to more make uh, I guess set personal goals uh, in the middle of the year and be a little more accountable to those especially I guess now as we're all social distancing I'm gonna keep bringing up quarantine and think a little bit about what goal setting actually looks like in a sustainable way because I think the type of goal you set really determines whether you're able to achieve it and setting the goal also has to come from somewhere within you and not from just because it's a new year particularly on this date right so maybe yeah. that would fit better in your life anyway and then yeah. it's easier to keep also yeah it has to be relevant and i think around the new year there's a lot of typical goals that people go for that aren't necessarily relevant to them but it seems to be uh what other people are doing and my goal is definitely not to go to a gym in the in the month of January because they're packed. <laughs> That's very true. I can tell you that. I've been there. <laughs> All right. Next question. If you could only eat one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? 
So my work wife describes my diet as salads and ice cream and very much when I'm living on my own I'm either creating sort of roasting vegetables and creating salad bowls and then you know topping it off with a Ben and Jerry's at the end of the day. So you know can I pick both if I if I can't I guess I would go for the ice cream. I was gonna say is that even a choice? <laughs> right? <laughs> But I'll give you both no worries. <laughs> Right. And then, what is your favorite cartoon character? Oh, this is a great question. You know what? <laughs> Recently, Ryan Reynolds played Pikachu, and I was never a Pokemon fan, but I was a fan of that movie. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, also the minions from Despicable Me. Oh, very um, cute. My quarantine is filled with a lot of bananas for my breakfasts. <laughs> so, uh, banana. <laughs> That's right. The little minions come up too. Good one. And if you would win the lottery tomorrow, what would be the first thing that you would buy? One thing. Oh, Jesus. Oh, I try not to have these thoughts because they're dangerous. Um, <laughs> I mean, I would say a plane ticket, but that's not very possible right now. If I won the lottery after we after we find this vaccine for COVID-19, I would say a vacation. Definitely. Probably to a deserted island somewhere with a lot of sun. One of those islands where you can't get a really cheap deal. <laughs> with a beach. Yeah, by like transferring three, two or three times. So I'd go there. I'd do some traveling, I think. Sounds very good. So mm -hmm. hopefully you'll win the lottery. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thanks for sharing with us anyway. Hi there. Before we move on with Nevena's story, I would like to remind you that on our social media accounts, you can find more information about our upcoming guests, see backstage footage, listen to the episode promo, and even play some games with us. And even more interesting is that you get to interact with our guests. Throughout the week, we ask our followers to submit questions to our next guest and we choose one to record into the show. Stay tuned to listen what question the audience had for Nevena. Now, let's go on with the episode. I think now we're ready to dig in a little bit deeper. And I want to start with this one, actually. It seems like you knew pretty much from the start that pharmaceutical science was your thing, right? You've done that for your BA and then also for the MA and now you want to continue with a PhD. But how or when did you decide to start with a BSc in pharmacy and why in British Columbia? Hmm. So my family immigrated to Canada when I was about three years old and kind of what comes with that kind of first generation mindset is, uh, you know, to really emphasize education as a way to support yourself and to build a life for yourself in a new place and also picking something that is applicable to the job market. And schooling was something that was always really important to me and I found a lot of identity in it. And I guess sciences and biological sciences and uh, kind of the medical field um, were things that were kind of sparking my interest at the time when I was, you know, pre-university. And it was just um, 
honestly, in the, after the first year of uh, my undergrad at the University of British Columbia, uh, pharmacy was the first thing that I could apply for, have the credits for, and get into. And it was something that also brought a lot of comfort to my family. But it was some, also something that I grew into because I realized how life-changing medications can be in terms of uh, living a healthy life and how important it is to understand not only the purpose of a medication but um, all these other things when it comes to how it goes through your body uh, in terms of metabolism, side effects, potential interactions with other medications and how how much of a sort of how much critical thinking that takes and that is kind of what's kept me in the field and that's kept me really fascinated with drug development and drug therapies because they can be life-changing and that can be either positively or negatively, depending on how you make those decisions. So that's what kind of started my, um, that's where kind of pharmacy started for me. And then I had some, it was a lot of life-altering questions at the end of my degree as to kind of what the next steps are. Did you specialize into something more specific when you went into the MA? So the Master's of Science, I... I literally just went upstairs in my faculty um, to the fourth floor. So the Masters of Science is actually, it's not related to being a clinician. So other, other students who have various backgrounds can do research in our faculty, and it's just like any other graduate degree. And we actually have quite a diversity of, I guess, research areas because we're all the way from drug delivery to drug kind of development and... Uh, to health outcomes and sort of the public health side of it, which is where I'm sort of situated. Did you find out during your BSc what you were really specifically interested in in your field or not yet? So I guess what really changed what really changed for me was getting the research uh, assistant role with the contraception and abortion research team. And that's where... Um, that's where I felt like I did a massive amount of learning in terms of research methods and the power, or I guess the change that can, you can create when your researchers are closely um, talking to people who are in, po in policy, who are in government positions and who kind of make legislative changes. Because the project that we were working on was, was doing research around, around the implementation of uh, this medical abortion medication that was just being approved in Canada, and how can we, how can we increase access, especially to areas where access to abortion uh, is so limited? And so, working with that team and the kind of just the amazing people that were there was extremely inspiring. I've gone to quite a few conferences. When you go to a reproductive or sexual health conference, there is something so inspiring about that crowd there isn't a presentation that you can zone out of because it's not just the research, it's how do you apply the evidence and how do you apply the knowledge that you're, uh, that you're creating to create change in the lives of women. And since I, medicine has taken quite, has kind of lagged in terms of research in the area of women's health, being with that group of really inspiring uh, researchers and uh, academics and advocates is just something that really struck me and that's kind of at the end when I made my very last minute decision to do a master's uh, do a master's instead of go work in the community as a pharmacist that was the thing that really sort of motivated seeking out that opportunity so you would say that 
that experience, which was a bit more practical maybe even than just studying from the books in the BA, was really mm -hmm. what inspired you to continue studying? Yeah, yeah. I've, throughout my um, pharmacy degree, even though the course load was intense, the, really the way that I got it through it in terms of stayed sane was all the extracurricular work that I was doing on the side. Well, whether it was volunteering, sort of doing outreach, uh, volunteer work, and teaching other students about um, how to interact with specific marginalized groups and also doing my own learning about that, a lot of sort of everything that I did outside of my courses was, I feel like, what shaped me as a person. And then the learning about the learning about sort of the clinical aspects of pharmacy and being a pharmacist is kind of the tools that I now use to be able to think about how I can how I can bring value kind of to those to kind of the research work. All right, to combine it, that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. To combine a bit more of the pure theory from the books with the experience you've had and also are actually trained for in the BA. Yeah. The the bringing the bringing sort of science to people you know, we call it knowledge translation, but what's the point of being really smart and philosophizing in your kind of ivory tower if you can't use that to bring value to someone, to someone's life? So I hope this will help you uh, being on this episode, this podcast, to share the knowledge. I also meant to ask you uh, why you chose to go to British Columbia. Well, I grew up in British Columbia in the Vancouver sort of lower mainland area, and I decided to go to school to the University of British Columbia because it was a school that was near me, so financial aspects of it, also being close to my family who, you know, my immediate family is here, but the rest, my extended family is very far apart, and I think it was, it would have been very scary, I think, for my parents for me to leave very early. And then when I kind of made the shift of I'm finished my pharmacy degree, I'm gonna I'm gonna start this master's. I had an amazing conversation. I just popped into really my supervisor's life um, one Friday morning. I gave her a cold call at the end of one of my practicum rotations, and I said, "Hey, I'm downstairs. I hear you do research uh, with pregnant women, and I've done, I have some reproductive health background." And I just decided that I maybe wanna, I maybe want to kind of explore what a graduate degree in this faculty would look like. And she said, uh, she's like, can you, can we meet next week? And I'm like, I'm actually going to Australia next week. Can we meet this afternoon? And we clicked from our first uh, encounter. And I was writing my graduate application, which was due two weeks after, uh, while I was about to board a sailboat with my friends for the weekend. So that's when I submitted it with a lot of, in a crazy hostel on a Friday night. And I don't think I've looked back since. So I had a, I would say a week prior to that conversation, I had a very different idea as to where I would go. And after I kind of made that jump, everything else has kind of fallen into place since. All right, so that's also what I wanted to talk about today. You're not even officially done yet with the MSc, but you've already landed the position as a PhD. So how did that happen exactly? Did you not have to show the MA degree before you could be accepted? Or are you still waiting for an exception letter, maybe? Um, so I've gotten my acceptance letter and the plan is to kind of wrap up my 
master's soon. Congratulations. Yeah, so it hasn't happened yet, but um, hopefully um, I'll be able to make those deadlines. There aren't, quarantine isn't necessarily imposing challenges on my research like it is other students. But I feel like since, like from the moment I started my master's, me and my supervisor really clicked and I think a large part of the decision to stay was knowing that the mentorship, like having that experience with the mentorship that she provides and knowing that she's going to have my back um, throughout and is really Given the uncertainty of what you do with a PhD now, um, I know that she will definitely support me in finding kind of the path that works for me. Uh, so she's been dropping hints that I'm going to do her, my PhD with her since probably the first few months in. And um, so it really wasn't so much of a will I get in and will I be able to pursue that with her. It was more of a do I make this decision now given I am so young, I haven't worked, I haven't taken time off to work in between my degrees. So I've did five years for a pharmacy degree. I jump back into my master's and I'm not, I'm deciding not to take a break between my PhD. And so what does that mean uh, to someone who might be thinking about hiring me and whether I'm okay with that? So it sounds like your supervisor is pretty supportive and I hope yes. you'll pull through together all the way to the end. Yeah. Sounds like it should be all right. And uh, for you, it seems that you're also looking forward to not only getting the degree, but also do the side projects and get the networking Yes. with all of these awesome people that you've probably read about a lot. Yes, yes. I mean, it also uh, didn't hurt that, you know, since the beginning, she was someone that was saying, you know, she's, she was telling me that she wanted me to stay. And so I think as a student, um, recognizing in someone that you are, may pick to be a mentor through this like four year plus degree, recognizing that they want you there and that they value you uh, as a member of their team, I think goes, uh, you know, goes so much further than some of the other little things. It is very important, but it sounds like you're kicking off quite well. Yeah, yeah, so far, so far. I'm always, cool. I'm really bad at, um, I don't know, taking a moment to appreciate what I've gotten. I, as soon as it's there, I'm like, okay, next step. Next, please. <laughs> Which is something that I'm working on. You'll get there, don't worry. You need to take the time to appreciate what you've accomplished. I think that's very important. You can't only look at the challenges and see the hurdles. You also have to understand how far you've already gotten. And with the resume that I just read aloud from you, not even having your MA degree yet, I think you're on the right track. Thank you, Danny. <laughs> All right, so... You already mentioned that thinking about doing a PhD or not was making you nervous a little bit because you weren't sure if maybe you should get some practical working experience first. And this is something I think that a lot of people struggle with when they consider going on, moving on with a PhD and maybe into an academic career or not, right? So what were the other options out there for you? What kind of jobs were you interested in as another option? Why did you not pursue them? And when you make these considerations, what advice did your family or friends give you? Mm. So I think the things that were on my mind, what you kind of hear when you're asking other people as to whether or not to do a PhD and where to do it, is 
if you're going from one degree to the next, people recommend taking some time off to work and build that experience. Or they may also, another thing that would be relevant to me is they recommend going to other places to show that you can work in different arenas, right? And so another thing that was maybe a fear of mine is that me staying at the same university for what will come to be a decade <laughs> soon might not, you know, might be seen as a disadvantage to some. And so those were kind of my considerations. Another sort of area that I thought about going in and that was really my consideration prior to starting my master's was uh, pursuing clinical pharmacy. And so the reason I decided not to do community pharmacy is because as a, like in pharmacy, you learn so much. You have built this capacity to really, to, this you build this knowledge and this capacity to really support patients in their medication decision making. Like they call us drug experts and I think that sounds a little, <laughs> it sounds cheesy, but at the end of the day, uh, when you look at what medical students get in their degrees, they don't, they get far less pharmacology um, and kind of medication decision making that you have. But when it comes to the job market, just with a, a four-year pharmacy degree, you generally have the qualifications to work in community pharmacy. And community pharmacy is your regular sort of dispensary, where you do get some sort of privileges in terms of making medication adjustments, depending on where you live. But at the end of the day, you're maybe using, very conservatively, I want to say maybe a fifth of what you know, and for someone who really likes sort of the problem solving and the coming up with solutions and being creative aspects of, or wanting that in my kind of future work environment, going down the community pharmacy route just didn't seem like something that was gonna make me happy long term. And if you wanna go up in that field, which I generally levitate towards leadership positions, you can become a pharmacy owner and you can manage a small business. But it feels like, for me, it would, I'm someone who's very bad at thinking about the financials. As you can tell, I could be making, you know, working and making money as opposed to making a little less money as a graduate student and researcher. So... I think we're all in the same boat there. Yeah, I think we're... I really need to emphasize thinking about financials when I make my decisions. Like, it's... I, I have it on, like, a post-it sometimes. So maybe that's also why I'm asking and which is something that often concerns family or close friends. It's like, okay, uh, nice and fun to go into continue something you find interesting, but how are you going to support yourself? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's kind of a double-edged sword where I don't think I'll ever want to work full-time in community pharmacy, but having the degree behind me gives me the education to uh, kind of supplement what research questions I asked and also gives me the opportunity to work on the side uh, part-time and still be able to kind of financially support myself. So having a clinical degree before you go into, uh, into the research field is very valuable. Between my master's or even before my master's, I had considered sort of additional education um, to be able to work in a hospital setting where you get to work more with an interdisciplinary team. And that's not something that's necessarily off the table right now. Of course, it's not going to happen in the next four years. But that is another route uh, that I considered. And at the end of the day, that is an opportunity that's still going to be out there for me. Whereas potentially this opportunity to work in 
the research field where I am so passionate, where I know I'm going to be supported and with a supervisor that I know gets me and has already proven that she's able to help me kind of achieve beyond what is expected at my level, um, that is an opportunity that the timing of that necessarily wasn't going to be available to me down the road. It sounds that you've considered very well what it is you want to do and that this is a decision that you've made based on at least figuring out a lot of different things and then deciding that this is the best for you right now and you don't need to justify that for anyone. But I think yeah. it could help others uh, listening to this who might be interested in also starting a PhD or not to understand why others have made that decision. So thank you mm -hmm. for sharing that. How much time do you anticipate the PhD to take? So before I kind of came in, Mary had a previous student that was uh, had a pharmacy degree and uh, was working in the re reproductive health space. And she was... She was incredible. She finished uh, her PhD in three years. I don't necessarily think that that's my goal. I feel like it's okay to take it a little slower, but um, I'm expecting to take about four years um, to complete it and then um, see what's next. I suppose also because you're willing to take on other projects which interest you that yeah. during the PhD you have the option to. Um, so mm -hmm. if you want to stretch it for a reason like that, it sounds totally legit to me. Yeah, but three years is definitely not the norm over here. Um, it's more four and then if data is taking a while to you know, become available for you or you know, the logistical steps that get in the way, four is still quite a short period in most students' eyes. Alright, are you going to write a dissertation or are you going to get the PhD through article publications? So I think, I know there's two ways of writing sort of a thesis. It can be paper-based or I guess dissertation-based. The way that I'm writing my MSc uh, thesis now and probably the way that I'll do my PhD is um, paper-based and so at the end of the day that looks like a number of chapters being actual publications and then adding a little bit at the start in terms of a background and introduction and kind of an integrated discussion and I think the way that we think about it on our research team because especially in sort of the public health field and when you're working sort of with administrative data you know you're not necessarily developing drugs um, the key deliverables in that space are your publications your awards your kind of knowledge translation activities whatever that may look like and so the deciding to do a paper-based thesis is very much sort of to supplement what is valued in, in this kind of area of research. All right. And I know that you've already had some experience with publishing. You also said that this was already expected of you during the MA. But what do you think it's like? And how do you deal with rejection? What keeps you motivated to continue? There's always another project that has my attention. <laughs> I think when you... Like when I was maybe thinking of my first papers in my um, in my pharmacy degree, you have that one paper in mind and you're like checking whether the peer reviews have come in, what the final call is. Um, now when you have so many projects going on, you really don't have the luxury of worrying about something that's happening when you can't be giving your attention to something that is, you're still in the process of developing. And so 
I think I've developed after some setbacks where in my I guess undergrad degree where uh, you know fail failure was or like not succeeding not being perfect I definitely had a perfectionist complex that stuff really hit hard but when you kind of when you have that experience of you know getting rejections and things not working through you kind of reset your expectations and like I understand that maybe of maybe 30% of the things that I apply for, whether it's a paper or award, hopefully 30, uh, will come with a positive outcome. But there's so much time that goes between your application and you actually receiving, you receiving sort of the response. When so many things are going on, it's easy to forget, which I think is nice. And I've definitely learned to kind of not hold on and always be thinking about sort of the next idea. And I think after you've had some successes, you're able to go th through that point of understanding that you have a lot of value in the work that you do, and you're very capable of producing, you know, good publications, good papers to receive awards, and that also gets gets you through. So I think that first step is always the hardest, that first paper, that first award, because unfortunately in academia, you get awards based off of the awards that you have received. Just like in the job market, you get jobs based off of previous experience that you had. So that first step in the door is always the hardest and it comes with a lot of imposter syndrome. But kind of getting past that, it gets easier. And just focusing on sort of what's next and the possibility, I think, has kept me going. So always looking ahead and not staying stuck on what you were working on previously, whether it gets rejected or awarded. Yeah, yeah. And just following up and... Um, you know, there's always a different journal that you get to, there's always a different application, a different journal. Uh, you just keep going. I'm just like a little hamster on a wheel. That's, that's my life motto is just keep going. <laughs> keep on swimming. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's what I was going to say. Uh, back to the, back to the favorite cartoon characters, Dory, <laughs> just keep swimming. Exactly. That's what I was thinking at the same yeah. time. Cool. All right, and that brings us to the question that a lot of people might have actually asked you when you told them that you're going to start a PhD, and that is, what are you going to do with that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Grad students hate getting that question after, when are you going to graduate? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't necessarily think that my kind of the position that I want to be in in five years is necessarily out there right now but I have an idea of what I want it to look like and so that looks like an opportunity to be creative and to manage projects and to doing something that where my work matters to a particular community of women and you know the the community that is affected by the work done in women's uh, sexual and reproductive health and sort of other other areas that I've worked into. I want to be able to provide mentorship and to provide teaching to students and so having that opportunity to pass down knowledge is very important within a team and then also the variety of having an unpredictable day keeps me uh, always guessing and keeps me my interest kind of peaked and I've realized that sort of that's what I, no matter kind of what position my future career may look like, I need to make sure that it's something that is stimulating to me and that makes me really passionate and makes me want to get out of bed and at the end of the day. And with that, I will 
bring the caveat of whenever I have these sort of conversations, I always recognize that I have a lot of privileges that other students don't. I currently am not making decisions with a partner. I am not married. My decisions um, don't affect someone else in my life, and I don't have children, and some grad students do, and so their decisions might be based off of their families. My family is very supportive, um, and they helped me through my undergrad, and I'm currently able, through my graduate work, to, you know, be financially stable enough to pay for my tuition and to support myself and sort of my shopping habits. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. Not only the shopping. Right? Although stores are going to be weird soon. <laughs> so I think I'm considering positions in a ver variety of realms, whether that's academia, whether that's somewhere in government and kind of putting policy and research together. And then there's always big pharma at the end of the day. But I think I feel comfortable right now not necessarily having kind of decided which route or where I will go next. Especially because I'm at the start, I guess. I haven't even started the PhD. I think that's very fair. I think you're fine. Yeah. You don't have to give me a five-year plan yet. And I hope no one will ask you no. that. Oh, only my mother. <laughs> She gets to do that. She's the only one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hi there, before we move to the last part of the show, we have the social media question to Nevena. We've asked our social media followers to submit questions and have selected one to record into the show. If you want to know the identity of our next guest and submit a question, please follow our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just go to at what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. And now to the question, which is Nevena. What was the purpose of your Ryan Reynolds campaign on Twitter, and how did it go? <laughs> so this question has a lot of layers, I'll say. And so please bear with me, I'll get to the Ryan Reynolds bit in a sec, but I'll give you a little bit of backstory first. So my research team does a lot of work in arthritis and cancer, and so when the world stopped everything in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we recognized that these changes were going to affect the daily lives and the healthcare of patients with arthritis and cancer. And we decided to launch what we call the Unified Study, which seeks to understand the experiences of individuals with immunosuppressive conditions during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we partnered with patients and rheumatologists and oncologists to create two international online surveys that asked specific questions about the treatment, medical care, and mental health of patients being treated for arthritis or cancer during the pandemic. And we've mainly been recruiting participants online through social media and in collaboration with research and patient groups we work with. And somewhere in our conversations about other people and groups we could contact to help us amplify our recruitment message, the idea came up to reach out to Ryan Reynolds. And it started off mostly as a joke. Unfortunately, I have this habit of taking jokes seriously sometimes. And so the backstory for why Ryan is kind of a few months after I started my master's, I scattered these photographs of Ryan Reynolds all over our main office space. And these photos were first given to me by my brother, who got them as a funny secret Santa gift. As you can tell, our family has a lot of Ryan Reynolds fans. And he gave them to me, and I've never been much of a decorator, so I needed some help personalizing my workstation. So Ryan has become an honorary member of our research team now, I'll say. 
And when we all went into lockdown, I was sharing a lot of the videos Ryan was posting to social media about helping out in the fight against COVID-19. So it suddenly wasn't impossible to think that there was maybe a 1% chance he could help us too. At the end of the day, this ended up being a creative strategy to explore for research recruitment. So I created this funny three-minute video professing my love to Ryan Reynolds and asking him to help us spread the word about our study. Spoiler, I did not get retweeted by Ryan Reynolds. That is still a dream of mine. But it was one of my most in impactful tweets to date, and we got a lot of good feedback and laughs amongst patients and researchers on social media, those that we know and those that we didn't. And that helped spread our message too. And so we're still recruiting for that project, so I have to make sure that I plug our website, www.unifiedcovid.com, where you can go to learn more about our study. And then we're also analyzing data as we collect it, since the purpose of this study is not just to get a picture of what's happening with arthritis and cancer patients, but use their reported experiences to inform their care. So we're talking closely with our healthcare partners, and we're also already submitted a couple of papers that will hopefully be published and disseminated soon to the broader international community. So I guess if I have one take-home message to other grad students doing research is don't be afraid to get creative and to personalize your work. It helps other people get invested in it, and it also makes it a lot funner for you too. All right, so I'd like to wrap up with another few short questions, of which the first one is, what was the most important conference you've been to? Mm. The conference that was kind of life changing for me was um, the North American Forum on Family Planning that happened in New Orleans and which I got a travel scholarship from the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. That was for some of the work that I was doing in terms of creating a checklist to help with the education and the count of uh, consistent counseling of this new medication that's used for medical abortion. Uh, pharmacists had not been necessarily had experience with being a part of the medical abortion uh, space and so creating this uh, tool to help them empower their patients in terms of making decisions in their treatment and being able to really understand what is expected, what shouldn't be happening, how to time their treatment so that it doesn't interfere with their life. So. That was kind of my first big research project, and it was my first big international conference. In addition to being at this space where there were so many inspiring advocates for uh, women's reproductive rights, and this conference was happening right after Brett Kavanaugh was nominated to the American, uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court, so quite timely. Uh, I almost forgot about that one. <sighs> right. Unfortunately, so many things happen that you can easily forget all the tragedies. Um, but that was life-changing from the people that I met to just being able to uh, explore New Orleans, which is a very, um, is, is an amazing city uh, with lots of great food, although not a lot of salads eaten <laughs> I guess. during that trip. <laughs> needed to, you know, uh, needed a little help becoming regular afterwards, but... <laughs> That was life <laughs> Perfect. And then, are you getting a scholarship for your PhD? Uh, yes, thankfully. So I've been offered a couple of um, awards that would fund my PhD. One is from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. So they're a government-funded agency that provide a number of Canada graduate scholarships to master's and PhD students, and I've received 
one of their doctoral awards, as well as a four-year doctoral fellowship from the University of British Columbia. So my PhD research, as well as my um, graduate tuition, will be covered through some combination of these two um, sources of funding when I start my PhD training in September. All right. Uh, considering that you have not finished your MA yet, but you did mm. already publish a little bit, and you also got an award already, what do you consider is your best contribution to the field so far? I think what's coming out of my master's thesis is going to be really exciting. From my master's work, the thing that is most exciting was my first first authored paper that kind of demonstrated that women with rheumatoid arthritis, when they're making medication decisions, often decide to discontinue medications that are safe for them to use in pregnancy in their first trimester. And sort of the issue with, or the potential issue there, is that both medications and also kind of severe disease activity can potentially cause negative outcomes to both the mother and the baby. And so in terms of that paper, we demonstrated kind of what was going on on a population-based level in British Columbia, but it didn't necessarily um, provide answers as to why is this happening and whether this is something that a patient, the decision a patient is making, a decision that a provider is making, and whether this is kind of clinically appropriate. So that paper was extremely exciting for me because it was a big deal in a big journal. Uh, but with my thesis work, um, doing interviews with young women of reproductive age who have ha not had pregnancies and are thinking about it or are have decided not to have children or have had children and had pregnancies during their RA and had to make those decisions about medication, I think what's coming out of those interviews is going to be incredibly fascinating and I'm hoping to really use that as a way to think about how can we provide information and provide guidance and provide support so that whatever the decision is, and not just related to medication use, but kind of the whole sort of treatment and management of RA, that that is something that helps women feel very in control of their medical decision making and feel like their opportunities to build their family the way that they want to are not hindered by this, um, by having a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. Sounds very interesting paper. Do you care to tell us where we can find it? So it was published in the Journal of Rheumatology Oxford last year. So October 2019, and it's called Perinatal Use and Discontinuation of Disease-Modifying Anti-Rheumatic Drugs and Biologics in Women with Rheumatoid Arthritis, a Cohort Study. A very short title, but we can replay it, so it's all right. <laughs> all right, and then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? There's a lot of researchers that um, I pro profess my love to on Twitter since I've started being in the Twitter sphere. I think a lot of people, in terms of in terms of people who I work with, a lot of kind of people on my team impress me daily. Uh, my supervisor is someone who is able to both manage her personal and professional life, and so that's extremely inspiring. And she's had some of her own kind of medical setbacks, and she found a way to find value in it. So after her personal cancer diagnosis, she we have now kind of spread into the cancer sphere and we're thinking about how how a diagnosis of cancer may influence your reproductive health decisions so that's like a side project um, and so she's been extremely inspiring and is obviously why <laughs> it's obviously a reason why I'm moving forward the way that I am 
That sounds like a wonderful, supportive, and inspiring environment you're going to start working in. Yes, yes, hopefully. Great to hear. And then my last question, as usual, is how do you relax after a hard day of work? Oh, so I'm not so good at relaxing. <laughs> But now that I'm kind of thinking a little bit more about my well-being, and this was happening, I guess, pre-quarantine too, Uh, I'm, I used to practice karate before I got into my pharmacy program and I've learned to kind of translate those skills into yoga and probably the meditation helps a little bit with the calming of the brain. And then really long walks now, especially with the sun coming out and deciding to live with my family through quarantine. Going outside and having a moment for myself is just so peaceful just the slightest joy that i never took advantage of before so the quarantine helped you discover what you need to relax yeah it's definitely made me kind of reevaluate what i need to feel like i'm not deteriorating into the couch <laughs> the couch is a dangerous place it's already shaped exactly like my body right right like just a little c shape so um yeah my daily goal is just to have is to photosynthesize, so just a little bit of sun to hit my face. <laughs> very good. All right, great. Um, I want to thank you very much for chatting with me today. And I also want to thank our listeners and our followers on social media. We'll be back with a new episode again next week. All right. I, you wow. just said New Orleans, right? I can't believe yeah. it. Like my number one place to visit in the US of A, where I've never been before yet. I've never crossed the ocean before. Uh, is New Orleans. It's my number one place. I'm so obsessed over it with the food and the culture and the music. How was it? It was amazing. They always have music going, especially down Bourbon Street. And I think I was just leaving as they had a festival going on. So if I had planned better, it would have been even wilder. But one thing that I have to show is this sort of men's jacket that um, an artist made um, where he literally just throws paint at expensive jackets and he makes it art and I bought kind of the smallest one and I've maybe worn it once but it is and I paid way too much for it um, but it is a joy to see in my closet every 